Welcome to the Antioch Word, a podcast for the Antioch College community. My name is Mary Evans, and I'm the 2018 Miller Fellow at WYSO. Today you will hear Episode 2 of Antioch College's first Freedom to Vote rally. Special guests Jamal Lemmy, current Antioch College student Elijah Snow Rackley, and Antioch College professor Kim Landsbergen share the importance of voting. My task today is to unpack some of the vital connections between environmental justice, voting, and democracy. I'm going to do that today by focusing on two issues, climate change and water is life. So there's been a good bit of call and response with the singing today, and I also want to say thank you to the World House Choir. So there's a few points in my speech where I say water is life. And at that point, I want you to say that with me. Can we practice that now? Water is life. Good. In case if you have not heard of environmental justice before, Dr. Robert Bullard, considered to be one of the key founders of the movement, described it in a 1999 interview. Quote, the environmental justice movement has basically redefined what environmentalism is all about. It basically says that the environment is everything, where we live, work, play, go to school, as well as the physical and natural world. And so we cannot separate the physical environment from the cultural environment. We have to talk about making sure that justice is integrated throughout all the stuff that we do, end quote. Now, almost 20 years later, America is waking up to the reality that our human health, in fact, our very survival as a species is intertwined with the environmental integrity of our water, our air, soil, and all the other beings that we share this planet with. Especially within the last few years, more and more folks are realizing that many of our struggles are linked. Prison justice reform, racism, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, attacks on the environment. These are all symptoms of a sick system that places greed and profit above our common good. Just last month, Reverend Dr. William Barber organized an ecological justice organizing tour in North Carolina as part of the Poor People's Campaign. According to the New York Times, Reverend Dr. Barber is making environmental justice and climate change a pillar of a modern day war on poverty. One of the very biggest problems, one of the most global, is climate change. I bet you didn't expect to hear about climate change today, did you? <laughs> but everywhere I go, I have to sing this song. It's really important. Climate change destabilizes countries. It leads to food and water deprivation, and it increases refugee migration and human conflict. Despite a deliberate campaign, campaign to confuse and mislead Americans, the science is clear and convergent that human activities like burning fossil fuels over the last 300 years have added a lot of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And these additional gases have trapped heat and are warming our planet with rising seas and more energetic and intense bouts of drought, rainfall, and storms. When we burn coal to make electricity, when we drill fracking wells and release methane into the atmosphere, when we are forced to take part in a fossil fuel-based transportation system, we put greenhouse gases into the air that don't stay in Ohio. 
What we do here increases greenhouse gas levels globally, impacting the entire planet. This is not Vegas. What we do here does not stay here. <laughs> and our own government knows this too. Quoting a 2014 U.S. government interagency report on climate change, and I directly quote, the intensity, frequency, and duration of North Atlantic hurricanes, as well as the frequency of the strongest hurricanes, have all increased since the early 80s. Hurricane intensity and rainfall are projected to increase as the climate continues to warm. Storms are named, and they cost us in human lives. They cost us in ecological impacts, and they cost us in billions of dollars. I will say their names. Katrina, 2005, $161 billion. Sandy, 2012, $70 billion. Harvey, 2017, $125 billion. Maria, 2017, $102 billion. Florence, happening now in North Carolina and on the coast, 2018, billions of dollars and counting. Climate change is an environmental justice issue and a global issue. It's a global issue too that has ethical and political implications. The poorest countries in the world like Bangladesh are paying a higher price in climate change crisis than rich countries like America, who puts a huge amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. In fact, an average American puts 34 times more emissions per capita into the atmosphere than someone from Bangladesh. Bangladesh is adjacent to India. It is the most densely populated country in the world with over 166 million people in a country where almost half of them live within 10 meters of sea level. Climate change, increased storm frequency, and sea level rise are making a refugee crisis there, and it will get worse there and in other poor vulnerable countries that did not make the pollution to begin with. Is this justice? Do you notice a trend? Although the tactic of the powerful is to divide us by our differences, to distract us with the crazy crisis of the day, and I know that you're like me and you look at your phone, you're like, okay, what's the crazy crisis of the day? And to manufacture doubt in science in many ways and to make us believe that it's hopeless, that we can't change anything, our unified message for everyone, everywhere, is that clean air is life, Say it with me, water is life. And we need all these things here in Ohio and all over the world. And we are prepared to organize and demand environmental justice and climate justice. In 2016, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and the entire Great Sioux Nation came together to oppose construction of a $3.7 billion oil pipeline from the Bakken fracking fields of South Dakota, known as the DAPL or the Dakota Access Pipeline. This 1,200-mile pipeline owned by a Texas oil company named Energy Transfer Partners snakes across treaty lands through Lakota ancestral burial grounds just a half mile from their reservation boundary. The pipeline crosses the Missouri River, a mighty river which provides drinking water for millions of Americans and irrigation water for thousands of acres of farming and ranching. The great Sioux Nation and many thousands of people, including some Antiochians, came to Standing Rock to say no to fracking greed, 
and to affirm that water is life. Sadly, they lost their battle, and the Energy Transfer Partners pipeline is now almost complete in its journey to the Gulf, with the last part being protected even now in the bayous of Louisiana, a state that has passed a new law that makes, quote, protesting critical infrastructure a felony crime. A felony. And this is a threat to our First Amendment rights under the Constitution. As they say in Cajun country, l'eau est la vie, or water is life. In 2014, over 300,000 people woke up in, the, in West Virginia, in Charleston, to find that their water was considered unsafe and they were unable to use it for cooking, bathing, brushing their teeth, bathing their babies. What happened? A spill of chemicals used by the coal industry leaked into the Elk River upstream from where the city drinking water intake is. People were using this water for days before the city detected the problem and shut off the water to the city. Due to this contamination, businesses closed, schools closed, hospitals struggled to meet their water needs, and the city came to a standstill for over three weeks. Residents there learned quickly that the coal industry has more power than the voices of the citizens of West Virginia's capital city. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the country, and this is an environmental justice issue. Poor places like West Virginia are environmental sacrifice zones, where mountaintops are removed and streams are polluted to mine coal, racking up short-term profits for companies and leaving a long-term environmental bill that poor people are left to pay. Folks in Appalachia know that water is life, and Antioch alumni were there in West Virginia too, helping organize people in this crisis. Likely the most famous and still ongoing water crisis is in Flint, Michigan. Raise your hand if you've heard about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. In Michael Moore's new film, he refers to this crisis as slow motion genocide. Against black and poor residents of Flint, Michigan, this terrible tragedy is a combination of privatization of public goods, corruption, and criminal cover-ups resulting in the chemical poisoning of the people of the city of Flint. In 2014, the city switched its water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. Within weeks, residents observed dark brown water with coliform bacteria and other health hazards that with further testing was found to include lead. Their city water supply was a lead delivery system. Think about that. Over the weeks and months that followed, the city and state officials downplayed the danger of the Flint River water to the people of the city, knowingly allowed the people and the children of Flint to continue to use contaminated water. Again, Antiochians, led by the Coretta Scott King Center, organized a water drive and a visit to Flint to help where they could. Flint has the nation's highest poverty rate among U.S. cities with at least 65,000 residents, according to the Census Bureau. These data also show that Flint ranks first in childhood poverty. An estimated 58% of Flint residents under the age of 18 live below the poverty line, 58%. Compared to the national average of 18%, and that is still too high. During the water crisis, poor people of Flint continued to be billed for water services that were unusable and poisoned. Imagine that. Imagine being billed for water that you can't drink. 
truly, this is the largest environmental justice crisis in America. The impacts of this are ongoing. We know that water is life, and in fact, a human right. In all of these cases, most of the people paying the environmental price, paying the human price, are poor people and people of color. So what do we do? We resist. We vote. When this situation means that someone else is profiting from polluting your environment, supposedly a state or federal agency should be supervising and protecting the well-being of our environment, managing the greatest good for the greatest number of the people. These agencies are in fact supervised by state and federal elected officials who are the people that we elect to Congress. This is where we come in. They do our work. They work for us. We elect them. We must demand that they do their job and protect the environment we all depend on or we will elect someone else. This is a reminder that we have the power. We have the power to vote in or vote out elected officials who write laws and supervise agencies. We have to call, write, email, tweet, do whatever it takes to let them know that we demand environmental justice. We have the power to call and visit our elected officials, to pressure them to protect us and our environment, and to not take corporate profits or lobbyist money. We are watching them. We have the power to use social media, direct action, Kingian nonviolence and other methods to create unbearable social tension and to build pressure and demand change. A shining example of hope is the bill that Governor Jerry Brown of California just signed, stating that by 2045, all the energy generated in California, which is, I believe, the ninth largest economy in the world, has to come from renewable energy. That means no more fossil fuel emissions. This is progress. This is a reason to hope. In closing, let us recall why we are here together today. We're here to recall the power of voting and in democracy and to claim our place at this table for many, many reasons that our speakers have mentioned and other speakers will share. We are here to recall the struggles of those who have come before us that fought for our rights to vote. We must stay vigilant and keep our eyes on the prize and keep on using our power to vote and to use our domestic rights to elect a government that represents us and does the work of the people. Last election, 63 million people voted for the Republican candidate and 66 million people voted for the Democratic candidate, but 100 million people did not vote at all. Let me go say that again. This, I'm going to say it again. Thank you. 63 million people voted for one candidate. 66 million people voted for another. But 100 million eligible voters did not vote at all. And that is why we are here today. Um, Non-voting was the biggest political party in the election two years ago. So we must change this. Let us remember that democracy is not a destination. It's a journey that we all need to join in if we're going to have a say about where this trip is taking us. Voting doesn't just mean showing up to the polls every two or four years. Democracy means showing up and committing to being part of the hard work of governance.
So please vote in November. Please register voters. Please help people get to the poll. Sometimes people need a ride. Do what you can. But realize that this is only the beginning. Local and state elections really matter. They really matter because it all adds up. We have to show up and we have to keep showing up. We are all in this together. Thank you. So just like our students, this is the type of faculty that we have at Antioch. Let's give her another hand. So we're moving right along. We have a schedule to adhere to. We have to get our last speakers up. We have Jamal Lemmy. Then he attended Florida Atlantic University. He's currently on a break because he's active with the March for Our Lives organization. They have just completed their Before Our Road to Change tour this summer. And uh, well, I found this interesting that he designed an American flag shirt that registers you to vote. Where the stars are supposed to be, there's a QR code instead, and you put registers you to vote in two minutes. So he's a very creative young person. And then we have, after Jamal, will be fourth year political economy major, Antioch student from Cleveland, Ohio, Elijah Snow Rackley. Let me also give a shout out to some of our community leaders. I can't really recognize you all, but I see uh, some pastors and some other um, presidents of organizations. So let's just give them a hand for being out today. listening to the Antioch Word. All right, hi, I'm Jamal Lemmy, and as she introduced me as, I graduated from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in 2016, and I'm currently a college student at FAU, but I am on a break right now to devote my time to this work because Lord knows we need it. So this summer, March for Lives, we, in, you know, we embarked on this journey called the road to change. And what this concept was, was that we were gonna all get on a bus and travel across the country for 60 days and see America for truly what it was or what it is. And during this journey, We've, we've seen it all. We went to Standing Rock and we stood, we stood with the Sioux Nation. We got to spend Father's Day with Mike Brown Sr. We were in Chicago marching through the South Side, a place that is often told to be plagued with violence, plagued with individuals who are often not friendly, but that whole night all we felt was love. We've seen the West Coast, we've seen the Rocky Mountains, we've seen what this country has to offer. And the one thing that I noticed everywhere I went is that we all share the same thing. And that trait we share is pain. Everywhere I went, I could see that every time we spoke, we, people had to unravel, people had to unbox the pain that they're feeling. Because February 14th, even though I wasn't there at my, my old high school, I never knew how much that would have affected me in my life. On February 14th, I lost my best friend, Joaquin Oliver. And to give you background, Joaquin was a young man that he loved. I mean, he loved so much. He had so much, to, so much love to give around. 
I moved to Parkland four years ago. And with only knowing me for a day, this is a young man that I befriended until February 14th. Joaquin was the young man that would stand up for anyone who loved. Joaquin would fight, and I'm telling you, he was probably, what, a, bu a buck 50, but he doesn't care. He'd, he'd fight anyone. If you disrespected someone he cared about, he was there to stand for you. And before all of this was happening, Joaquin and I, we were working on a project called War and Peace. And what this project was, to, was, was supposed to do was supposed to fund projects in war impoverished nations. Joaquin was the young man who was fighting and taking on the NRA way before, you know, what some people may call hip. Joaquin was the young man who stood up for the injustices, who stood up against the injustices in this country. And on February 14th, not only me, but Parkland and the world felt Joaquin's pain. Joaquin was a young man that not only was an immigrant himself, but stood for all immigrants in this country. Joaquin was a young man who not only must before he passed, gain his citizenship in this country. That reality of it is, is that kids are dying in their schools every day. People are dying in not only churches, people are dying at concerts, people are dying, now dying in their places of work. And the politicians that we have elected continuously stand and do nothing. And what I know is it is time to say that we will not elect a politician who does not stand for their constituent. We're going to elect morally just leaders. And I say morally just because it doesn't matter what, si what side of the aisle you stand on, but if you care about your people, you will stand for them and you will represent them. Because the thing about gun violence is, is oftentimes we talk about it as a polarizing issue. There is nothing polarizing about people dying in this country. It should be, it should be our innate nature to care for our brothers and sisters of this country. It should be, but no, you can see that we have people who oppose what we are trying to do. And like Jay said, we have to instill stricter gun legislation in this country. It should not make sense for me to live in Chicago, a place that has the strictest gun laws, one of some of the strictest gun laws in this country. To be able to drive 20 miles, 20 miles away to either whether it's Michigan or wherever it may be or Indiana, and be able to purchase firearms and often in mass and bring them back into my community. You're listening to episode two of Antioch College's Freedom to Vote Rally on the Antioch Word. Next, Jamal Lemmy tells why voting against gun laws can save lives, and current Antioch College student Elijah Snow Rackley expresses why voting makes changes happen. ...selves and to the people around them. It should be common sense that we can be able to go in with, you know, with due process and take that firearm out of that situation. No, that, and then the thing is, is you, you think that is common sense. You would think that is common sense. But what I've seen this summer is, sadly, common sense just isn't so common. I, I was in North Carolina, and I'm speaking, like, because one thing we love to do on our road tour is, like, we, didn't, we never wanted to create this echo chamber of people who just agreed with us. Because I believe in order to fix this problem, it's about hearing different perspectives to come to a resolution. So at every event, we'd go and we'd speak to counter-protesters. And just to give you some insight on how, the, how you know, the counter-protesters, the people who oppose us think, we stood there and we said to this, this man, he go, we go, kids are dying in this country. And he had the audacity to look back at us and say, prove it. So that just gives you an idea of how, how, how they think. Because often we, there's trigger words, whether it's gun control, whether it's um, anti-Second Amendment, whatever it may be. What often happens is due to the misinformation and just due to the lack of education on this issue, People hear these words and they automatically assume that we're trying to take guns away. But that is not our purpose. Our purpose is we want to live. 
We want our friends to live. And it shouldn't, and that, that, that's, and maybe in their head that seems like that's just a small ass, but we, we, we want to live. I remember in high school, we'd have, the, we'd have active shooter drills. And in that moment in time, I look to myself and I think, why am I doing this? Why is this important? Time and time again, we, we, I had to ask myself, that just tells you how just the idea of a school shooting just never crossed their minds. But thankfully enough, like, out of all this tragedy, the movement March for Our Lives sprouted up. Because what my friends and what my peers did is they were tired of not having a seat at this table. They were tired of being, of being told that they're too young or that they don't understand how the world works. But if, if I'm old enough to die, I think I'm old enough to give my opinion on this issue. I'm old enough to stand for this issue. And it is sad because when you look at the makeup of Parkland, Parkland is a community that is the wealthy, that is predominantly wealthy white people. And to have, and to, and to have this movement where there have been organizers and there have been activists who have been fighting for this cause for years upon years. And when we sprouted up, it was a blow. It was because why in this moment did people care about what happened in Parkland? And oftentimes we have to struggle with why, why was that? Maybe it was because we come from wealthy white America. Maybe it was because they, you know, we come from privilege. But what we realized was, was that this wasn't our movement. This movement did not belong to Parkland. This movement belonged to the world. And that's why we actively made it our decision to include activists from other communities, whether it was, it was Alex King of Chicago, whether it was Edna Chavez of South LA, whether it was Ariel from Houston, Bree Butler from, um, from Houston, whoever it may be, it was our purpose to pass, it was the, our purpose to pass on the mic and pass on the torch. Because at the end of the day, it's about growing and building strong coalitions to fix this issue because we do not want to exist forever. Our purpose isn't to exist forever. If, gu if, the, if the gun violence epidemic in this country ended today, we would dissolve. Because every single day, and even today, whatever I felt that day, that day on February 14th was a regular day. I finished class. I was headed to the beach with my friends. And to get a text about how my old high school, where I spent some of my best days, worst days, late practices, and to see not only bodies hitting the floor, not to, to see my friends screaming in pain, to see the people that I shared so many moments would go through that, that was something that I could have never prepared myself for. And I thought that, you know, with all this work, because with the activism, you, you, you dive head first. It consumes you. The energy of, the energy of this tragedy propel, propels you forward until you realize one day that you've given yourself to so many people and you've given yourself to this cause, what is left for you? And that's something that we all have had to deal with. We've had to build these support systems for one another. And for, and for me, it's realizing that this movement must go on because it's not about me. It's not about my friends. It's about the kids who are still in high school today, who still face the chance of being shot in their classroom. It's about the churchgoers who still face the, um, the chance of being shot in their places of worship, whether it is a concert, whether it is a movie theater. Because one thing is, is America accounts for 80% of all gun violence in more developed countries. And if you can look at that statistic and tell me we don't have a gun problem, then I think it is you that has the problem. 
because you're having a problem facing what the reality of America is. It, the reality of America is that there's this insane infatuation with these, these weapons because that is what they are. They are weapons. They are tools. They are tools for killing, and that's what they do. Because whether it is hunting or whatever you can use to justify it, that sole purpose of that is to kill. A gun is to kill. And I just leave here, and I want you to know that we at March for Our Lives stand with everyone in this space today. Because our movement cannot thrive and exist without each and every single one of you. It was, it was all of your sympathy that allowed us to gain what we have, to, to give us the momentum that we had. Because whether it was Emma crying on live television or David calling out you know, his favorite politicians, it was the people of America that let us be what we became. And I, I stand here to say that this midterm election, we will have the highest youth voter turnout in the history of this country. And I know that will be the case for generations and generations to come because in order to fix this issue, it's not about, it's not about pointing fingers. It's, I think it's about educating each one of us and holding each other accountable because it's not about whether I go to vote, it's whether about, it's whether about if I ask my friend to vote and ask, make them ask their friend to vote because in order to elect morally just politicians, we need to create an educated voter force. We need to engage young people. We need to give young people the chance to be a part of this conversation. And like I said before, and like I said before, if you're old enough to die, you're old enough to, to speak on this issue. And thank you again for giving me the opportunity to speak today. Thank you. All's my life I has to fight. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth, I'm fed up, homie, you fed up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright, we gon' be alright, we gon' be alright. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Elijah Snow-Rackley, and I'm a class of 2020 Antioch College student studying political economy. Um, and so today I'm here to tell you something that I think is important to me. And so I have here a newspaper from Centerville, Ohio, uh, which is a town just uh, a couple of miles from here, the Centerville Dispatch. And on it, it has the report cards that are issued by the state for every school district uh, around Centerville. And a lot of these schools, they've got A's and B's uh, for the ratings, but Dayton is the only school on this list, the Dayton City School District, with an F. And so I also come from a school district that receives an F rating. The way that our country our state and our cities evaluate and fund schools is an issue of racial equity. Acti <laughs> it's an issue that actively stacks the deck against students, especially students of color. We underfund the poor districts and undermine their ability to perform on state exams that are created not by educators, but by testing companies that are looking to turn a profit. Our mechanisms of funding schools through property taxes, even though it was deemed unconstitutional in the state of Ohio, is still law. Further deepening the achievement gap that helped drive this testing craze in the first place, we continue to fund our schools through taxes that are un unequal. 
Horace Mann, when he founded Antioch College, well, he was, he was a big advocate for standardized testing, but he was also a big advocate for phrenology, a racist pseudoscience that you know, measures your head and decides what kind of person you are. I think the two are one in the same. They're false methods of evaluation pushing an agenda of furthering, furthering racial inequity. In order for a democracy to function, we must have well-educated and informed voters. A vote in favor of well-funded education is a vote focused on turning the tide, a vote in favor of providing opportunities. Voting for legislators willing to take a stand against this is just one means of advocating for change. In order to turn the tide against this inequity in our schools, we need to be out on the picket lines with the teachers unions. We need to be supporting our after-school programs, and we need to be uniting behind our communities. On the way to revolution, there is a time of reform. Thank you. Another Antioch student. That was Milo Cooper and current Antioch student Elijah Snow Rackley on episode two of Antioch College's first Freedom to Vote rally. I'm Mary Evans, the 2018 Miller Fellow at WYSO. Thanks for listening to the Antioch Word. You can find more episodes of our podcast at WYSO.org, on NPR One, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts.